February 2016. Italian doctoral student Giulio Regini, 28, is found tortured and murdered on the streets of Cairo, Egypt. Five years on, those responsible for Giulio's death have still not been brought to justice, and similar cases continue to happen in Egypt under their authoritarian government. Primary sources for this episode include The Conversation, TRT World, People's Dispatch, The New York Times, Al Jazeera, The Wall Street Journal, Amnesty International and National Geographic. Hi guys, welcome back to episode 81 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. So I'm bringing you a new episode a couple of days early. It's been like five days since I bought you one, but next week or the following week from now till next week, it's going to be quite busy for me. So I'm dropping you one now so you don't think that I myself have disappeared. Um, So I don't really have too much to say before I get into this. I highlighted, I think, one... One news article because I said I was going to do some world news. Um, So the only one that I found, which actually tied into when we talked about it on the Rodney Marks episode, is they're doing commercial flights for Australians down to Antarctica to see the Southern Lights. Um, It's literally a day trip. It goes down, back up again. And depending on how well you want to be treated, um, it's between $1,300 and $8,000 for a day trip, which I don't have, but... I would love to do this. They depart from Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Perth. And it's really cool. Like, I mean, people have this on their bucket list and they do want to do it, but you don't leave the plane and it doesn't land. So I don't know if that's worth 8000 I'd rather actually go down like on a boat or something. That's the only world news that I have for this week. I tend to kind of screen cap them as I go and there wasn't really much related to, you know, traveling abroad or anything like that. So I'm going to get into this week's episode because I don't know how long it's going to go for. I've had this guy on my list to do pretty much since I started the podcast. He was one of like the first names because when I was searching for people missing or murdered abroad, um, Julio's name came up. So I'm just going to say that we're going to Egypt this week and that's because of patron Jenny who for her patron location request, she sent me a bunch of requests I like when people do that, just in case their first request, I can't find a story there. Um, but unfortunately, there was a fair few in um, in Egypt. She also requested a few others, and I couldn't find any there for now. So I'm doing Jenny first. I was going to do Nara first, but I'm actually still working on hers. So I'm doing patron Jenny's location request first. And Jenny is from New Jersey, New Jersey. Um, and she sent me a really nice message when she became a patron. And I want to thank you for requesting Egypt because I felt that we should probably go there at some point, but I was kind of putting it off because I have a lot of like feelings about this place that aren't particularly, you know, good, but it used to be a really big tourist attraction, not so much anymore. And I think Egypt has done that to themselves. Um, But yeah, so Jenny requested it. Now, Giulio Regini, his case is still ongoing, which really, I think when we get to the end of this, you'll all know that we know what's going on. We know what happened, but it's been five years and there's no answers and officially, and I don't think there's going to be any because that would mean, you know, showing that a country, you know, is a dictatorship run by a psychopath. Now, I have no recollection of Giulio's death in 2016, 
But it seemed to have made news, you know, across Europe in particular. Most of its coverage was across Europe. Um, I don't think Egypt tended to cover this. But I do remember the turmoil and violence of Egypt over the last kind of 10 years. And I do remember that on the news in particular, things that happened. And one of them is like the first thing I think of when I think of Egypt, which is really sad. So when we get to it, I'll tell you. Now, Julio's murder is truly like fucking terrifying and horrible on a level of Al Kite's murder, which we covered. He was the man who advertised for a roommate and this mysterious person, you know, who they've never caught, applied for the room and then proceeded to take the room and torture um, poor Al Kite, who was a lovely man. And I do think Julio was too, from what I can gauge from his pictures. Um, it reminds me of that in terms of what happened to Julio, but in terms of the answers, I think it reminds me of the Bob Levinson case. It basically is one country pointing the finger at the other country's government and that government claiming that they don't know about this person and they don't know anything. Um, so let's get into the case of Giulio Regini. Italian young man and he was born on the 15th of January 1988 in the town of Fiumicello which is right up in the northeast of Italy kind of a little bit further than Venice which is the closest to there that I've come. It's about 35 kilometers I think from the city of Trieste um, which is probably or Trieste which is probably the closest that you'd know of this area but it's right up on the side of Italy that's close to the Slovenian border and towards Croatia. Now, Giulio, I don't know a lot about his childhood or anything like that. His parents are mentioned quite a lot in articles. I don't know if he's got any siblings. His parents are mentioned, but their names never are. But So we don't know the day-to-day of Giulio, but he was an academic and clearly a very intelligent man. And by the time he died at the age of 28, he had achieved a huge amount. Now, Giulio spoke five languages fluently. Italian, English, Spanish, Arabic and German and he was a really good writer and a hard worker and clearly very interested in geography which he may or may not have liked this podcast. (laughs) 
Now, his friend Paz Zarate said, quote, his interests were wide. He was as much an expert on the Middle East as he was on Latin America. On the human level, he was warm, respectful, generous and kind. His abilities for communication made him a natural diplomat, a builder of bridges between cultures. I always thought his destiny would to be a well was to be a well-known figure who would have made his country proud, unquote, which is probably the, you know, utmost that you can say about a friend after they're gone, um, to say how well they would have done. Now, to describe Julio, um, which is G-I-U-L-I-O, in case you're wondering, um, so the first picture that I saw of him, I thought that he was Danny Boy, the Scottish comedian who I have seen live, um, but then up close he doesn't look at anything like Danny Boy. He looks like a very gentle guy, slim, I don't know how tall he was, maybe 5'10 or 5'11, um, and I know that he had lots of friends and there's a really lovely picture of him with a kitten and you know you can tell a lot about men by if they like cats or not as my gran used to say under a scholarship I found this very interesting um when he was in high school he attended a it's a boarding school kind of it's really highly esteemed um it's founded in 1982 by a man who was an industrialist and a philanthropist called Armand Hammer now if that name rings a bell to you it's probably because you know who Army Hammer is whether or not you like him or not the actor I I did like him as an actor it doesn't seem like he's making them anymore that was his grandfather who was fucking loaded and had his finger in like every pie I saw a picture of him the other day when Philip died like dancing with Princess Diana and I was like yeah this guy fucking knew everyone whether or not he was dodgy or not or a sex creep I don't know but this school was called UWC USA which is legally named the Armand Hammer United World College of the American West and it was located in Montezuma which is in the state of New Mexico and it's a two-year course and it's a boarding school and you come out of it pretty much with the ability to do whatever you want. Now the reason that that kind of weirded me out was because I was going to do the Cayman Islands recently um, for a case and someone requested it and I wasn't able to do it, but it was weird that the person had requested it because that's where Ami Hammer is from. But I contacted the family of a guy who has been missing in the Caymans for ages and they were not interested in talking. <laughs> um, they listened to my podcast and seemingly didn't like me, but whatever. So if that person's listening, that's why I didn't do the Cayman Islands. And roundabout, that's why I'm bringing it up because of Armand Hammer, Ami Hammer. Now, after going to UWC USA, Julio then did a BA at Cambridge University, which is pretty much like next to Oxford, which is where I lived in the UK and you'd walk past all the buildings. Cambridge and Oxford or Oxbridge as they're known together are kind of the two really esteemed universities that are rivals and they have like a, you know, a yearly um, boat race or, you know, what it, kayaking race or whatever and everyone watches it. Anyway, at the time of his death, Giulio Regini was completing his PhD through the University of Cambridge and he was living in Egypt in, in the suburbs of Cairo to research it. He was basically, I will get into it, but he was working on his PhD because he was always fascinated about Egypt. He was working on a piece about the trade unions of Egypt, which is, I think, probably a really dangerous thing to ultimately write about. But often when you are completing a PhD, I'm sure it's the same across the world, you are paid an allowance. It's not a very large amount to kind of live off. Um, I've known a few people who have completed them. They take around 
three or four years to complete and ultimately you write, you know, a thesis which is sometimes up to 100,000 words and you have a supervisor, you don't generally go to class maybe once in a while or you meet up with your supervisor to discuss it. Um, so you kind of are off campus most of the time. And there's no way that I would have gone on to complete a PhD. I knew a girl in uni who completed a PhD in children's literature and she ended up, like, all she wrote about was, like, Harry Potter. <laughs> she ended up, like, teaching it in the U- US. So once it, get, it gets published, you can generally get a job, like, as an academic. Now, he had also worked, now this is according to Wikipedia, but it's not mentioned anywhere else, but the person who has updated Wikipedia or the people have checked the notes and they do have the references to, you know, the news outlet that said it. So it said that he worked at a company called Oxford Analytica, which is an international consulting firm that provides strategic analysis of world events. They always sound really dodgy to me. Bill Gates probably has, you know, a share in that. Now, this group, I looked it up, it was founded in 1975 by David Young, who was an American employee of the National Security Council during the Nixon administration, but Julio was no longer working um, for Oxford Analytica. Now, as I said, pretty much since high school, Julio had been fascinated with Egypt, which I'm sure a lot of people are. It wasn't really an area that I was hugely fascinated in. I liked the kind of creepy things about um, <laughs> Tutankhamen and the pharaohs and um, discovering, you know, um, the Valley of the Gods, Valley of the Kings, Valley of the Gods, and um, all that. But I wasn't hugely, like, into the history of Egypt um, being one of the most ancient kind of countries in the world and, as they call it, the cradle of civilization. But through this, I, you know, have been looking back into it and adding a little little something, you know, that I think is really interesting. So as I said, I don't know the day-to-day on Julio, but I know that he had a lot of friends and he had a lot of friends across the world, including in Egypt, um, fellow like Italian academics or Italian expats. And he also had a girlfriend in Ukraine. And I know that because that was kind of the last text message that he sent out was to her. Now we're going to talk about Egypt um, and I can't get into how it started, you know, up to 10,000 years ago, whatever they think it was. I can't go into everything. Um, But I know a lot of you are really fascinated with it. So I've tried to cherry pick the pieces that you would want to know about. So the discovery, um, sorry, I was just going to say, the reason that this is timely is because just a few days ago, they discovered a city in Egypt that they dug up, which is 3,000 years old. They call it the Lost City of Egypt. Um, I don't, they did say that it had a name and they'd been looking for it for quite a while. Um, It has been hailed as one of the most important archaeological finds since Tutankhamun's tomb being found, which was in the 1920s, which we'll get into. Um, It's near Luxor and they've pretty much dug it up and they said it was the largest ancient city and it was known as Aten, ever uncovered in Egypt. So you've got to know that there's got to be so many under there and I find that like so fascinating when there's a city under a city. This is shout out to my Scottish listeners like Lorna, who's a patron. But um, when I was in Edinburgh, I did a tour of St. Mary's Close, I think it is, which is the city under Edinburgh. Like there's a whole city under it. And I've done like three tours where you go into, you know, um, all under the ground where they put people who had, you know, the plague and all this stuff. And I just find it so fascinating. Now, I'm going to read you a quick excerpt from history.com. Quote, for almost 30 centuries from its unification around three, 
3100 BC to its conquest by Alexander the Great in 332 BC, ancient Egypt was the preeminent civilization of the Mediterranean world. From the Great Pyramids of the Old Kingdom through the military conquests of the New Kingdom, Egypt's majesty has long entranced archaeologists and historians and created a vibrant field of study all its own, Egyptology. The main sources of information about ancient Egypt are the many monuments, objects and artefacts that have been recovered from archaeological sites, covered with hieroglyphs that have only recently been deciphered. The picture that emerges is of a culture with few equals in, it, in the beauty of its art, the accomplishment of its architecture or the richness of its religious traditions, unquote. And I guess that goes without saying because they still don't know how the ancient Egyptian, Egyptians built the pyramids. And this is something that I find really interesting, you know, were people back then, even before um, industrial revolutions, were they more intelligent than us? Are we getting dumber? Which is kind of what I'm thinking. Also, I was listening to an interview, watching an interview randomly like a week ago with Colin Farrell, who says that he wished that he hadn't done that movie Alexander. And I agree. Now, we haven't been to Egypt before, but a couple of weeks ago, I posted in Patreon photos of this news article that I found, which was just incredible. And it was this amazing procession of um, custom-built trucks that were relocating mummies to a new destination. So they were moving them from one museum to another, I can't remember, but it had entertainment, singers, dancers, all dressed up in ancient, you know, Egyptian costumes and things. Um, each truck, you should look it up or look up the post in my Patreon. Each truck, it was like, I can't even explain it. It was so cool. It was like black with like gold and it had the mummy's name that it was relocating on it. Um, it was amazing. Now, Egypt, you know, I guess it time will tell whether or not if you believe that the curse of the pharaohs exists, that those people who moved them in good conscience will, you know, ultimately die. Now, Egypt was once a place I wished to go to basically about 10 years ago. And also when I lived in the UK, I had a friend of mine who often went to Egypt. Bar in mind, she only went to this resort place called Sharm El Sheikh, which is really not real Egypt. You're in a resort where you could just be anywhere. You could be in Hawaii, you could be in Thailand. It really doesn't matter. I know I don't understand why people do that. Um, I've had other friends who have gone to Luxor and Cairo generally have the same feedback about it. Um, but really since their 2011 revolution, I've had very little interest in going there. And considering they have one of the worst records of violence against women and police not doing anything to either report it or assist while they're watching it happen, I really have zero interest in going there. I had a um, boss back in the day when I had a job in uni who she had been to Jordan and to Egypt and she was blonde and she just said that men just groped her, grabbed hold of her hair, just like animals, and she would never go back. Um, and that's generally the feedback, unfortunately, that I've had from most women and the statistics prove that. Now, <clears throat> my understanding of Egypt <laughs> comes from the movie The English Patient, which is one of my favourites, don't bag it, and I've probably seen it maybe a hundred times. And I most recently saw it about a month ago. And it basically covers a bunch of archaeologists in Egypt before the Second World War. And it's kind of a love story and it's very, you know, tragic. But I don't actually think, I think they did film parts of it in Egypt. I think some of it was in Morocco. Anyway, 
Egypt is officially called the Arab Republic of Egypt, and it's actually situated in the Mediterranean in North Africa, kind of North Africa is kind of south of France, if you look at it on a map. Now, Israel is on the northeast of Egypt, the Red Sea is to the east, and across that Red Sea is Saudi Arabia, which is a place we haven't gone to, and I hope not to, because even if you think Egypt's bad in comparison to violence, um, Saudi Arabia is a whole other thing. Jordan is across the Gulf. Greece is across the Mediterranean, as is Turkey and Cyprus. And Greece is probably the closest that I've been to Egypt. Now, the language in Egypt is Arabic and the capital is Cairo. And it is a republic with the president being a man that plays into the story of Julio, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. Now, the population is just over 100 million, which makes it the most populous country in North Africa and in the world, the 13th most populous. So people really living on top of each other. Now, early on, Egypt was an early Christian civilization, but in the 7th century, it became Islamicized, is that how you say it? And it, from now on, is largely Muslim. So the rules are very similar to other Muslim places we've gone to, including Iran. Egypt dates back thousands of years and their history is truly fascinating. Ancient Egypt saw inventions that, you know, we should be grateful for today. They invented agriculture, um, organised religion, maybe not so much, central government, urbanisation. Today in Egypt, many of the most famous landmarks in the world can still be visited. And, you know, most of you will probably know this as the Giza necropolis, the Sphinx, um, and the Romans or whatever, or oh, the Valley of the Kings. Sorry, Valley of the Gods that I said earlier is a documentary about Ryan Chambers, who we covered on episode five. That's why I was thinking of it. Um, and obviously the um, Great Pyramids. Now, speaking of mummies, this is where I added in the creepy information that I find really interesting. Many believe that those who disturb a mummy's tomb, including those who have discovered them, um, will meet the wrath of the pharaohs. Now, the ancient Egyptians believed in going to the afterlife safely, so they put them in their tombs or their sarcophaguses. Did you guys, when you were in school, have to make sarcophaguses when you were studying ancient Egypt, like in primary school? I'm wondering, because we had to make them with, like, paper mache. So, I remember reading ages ago that if you were a cook for a pharaoh, you know, the kings of ancient Egypt, like Tutankhamun, your life ended when Tutankhamun's life ended. And back then they died really young. Like Tutankhamun, I think was only, was he in his teens or in his early twenties? I can't remember, but basically they kill their chef to take them with them. And as many of you will know, Egyptians saw cats as royalty, which they are. Shout out to cat lovers, Jamie Kay and Corinne. So they would often kill the cat if it was still living and put it in the sarcophagus with the pharaoh. Now, throughout the tombs that they have discovered, there are warnings, which, for instance, cursed be those who disturb the rest, the ra- the rest of a pharaoh. Sorry, cursed be those who disturb the rest of a pharaoh. They who shall break the seal of this tomb shall meet death by a disease that no doctor can diagnose, unquote. Now, I'm going to go through a few for you of people who have met their end after, you know, kind of interacting with a mummy's tomb or relics of a tomb. Now, 
I think it must have been decades ago, but a man from Germany who was a tourist stole a relic from the Valley of the Kings and took it with him back to Germany. In 2007, it was sent to the German embassy in Egypt by his stepson. Now, this man had held on to it and very quickly became feverish. He became paralyzed, which is a common thing in these stories, and he very quickly died. And the thief's stepson sent it back because they believed that they could not continue on while it was in their possession. So they sent it back to someone at the embassy who touched it, and then they probably died. Now, on Tutankhamen, who was a very young king of Egypt, his tomb reads, quote, death shall come on swift wings to those who disturb the peace of the king, unquote. Now, there was a man, which many of you may know, who opened this. This was an archaeologist called Howard Carter. He was a British archaeologist, and he was accompanied by an Egyptologist called Lord Carnarvon, and they decided to open the tomb, and this was a massive thing in 1922, and after that, people were obsessed with Egypt. Now, four months after opening the tomb, Lord Carnarvon, who was the financial backer of this dig for Tutankhamun's tomb, he died four months later. They say he died of a mosquito bite on his cheek, but they say when he died, all the lights in his home went out mysteriously, which I don't think is true. Now, hate to burst your bubble, but there was probably tons of malaria back in the day and they didn't have anti-malarials. That was probably it. Now, another friend of Howard Carter's, whose name was Sir Bruce Ingham, he was, he received gifts from Howard Carter that were kind of relics of the tombs. Um, now, one of the gifts he received was a severed mummified hand that was wearing a bracelet, and on the bracelet was engraved the words, cursed be he who moves my body, unquote. Now, a few days later, Bruce Ingham's house burnt to the ground and they rebuilt it and immediately it was hit with a flood, destroying it again. Could be to do with the severed mummified hand. Now, there was a very rich American named George J. Gould and he visited Tutankhamun's tomb in 1923, which was the year after it was discovered. He very quickly felt sick while he was in the tomb and as he left it and he died of pneumonia. Now, there was another man who was called Sir Archibald Reed, and he wasn't on the expedition that actually discovered it. He was a radiologist, and he was given the body of the mummy of Tutankhamun. He was meant to x-ray it. After x-raying it, he got sick the day after receiving the mummy, and less than a week later, he died. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are probably painting the pieces together of this, <laughs> like in an actually logical way. An American Egyptologist called Aaron Ember died in his house when it burnt down right after he hosted a dinner party. He went back to save documents, which he ultimately died when he was going back to save the documents. He was working on documents called, quote, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, unquote. Now, there was an archaeologist called Hugh Evelyn Rice, and he was terrified of what had happened to his friends and colleagues, fellow archaeologists. He actually committed suicide at his house because he was so terrified of it. Apparently, he left a note that said, quote, I have succumbed to a curse which forces me to disappear, unquote. Now, another Egyptologist, because all of these came out of the works after Howard Carter, he kind of led the way and then they all became experts in Egypt. This man's name was Walter Brian Emery. He found a, a very small statue of 
Osiris, is that how you say it? It's the god of death in Saqqara, Egypt in 1971. Now he brought it back to his office, um, but left it to go to the bathroom. When he went into the bathroom, his assistant heard a commotion inside and his assistant found Walter Emery in a paralysed state, which is a common thing with the other ones. He died the following day, which was basically two days after he had found this statue and put it in his office. And he was diagnosed with full paralysis in the right side of his body. Another Egyptologist who I believe is still alive because he's quoted in more recent ones, he's a naysayer of this curse. He says it's bullshit. Maybe he's too scared. He was transporting artifacts from a site called Kom Abu Below one day and his aunt died on that day. Now, a year later, on the exact same day, his uncle passed away. And the year after that, on the exact same day, it was his cousin's death. But then it stopped. He does not believe Zahi Hawass that this exists. (laughs) Now, he was quoted when they were recently just a couple of weeks ago moving the bodies and having the big procession and the big kind of light show and all that, um, he was just saying it's all bullshit and he continues to say that so maybe he thinks he's warding it off by saying it's all bullshit. Now if you're wondering about Howard Carter who was the big famous dude who found Tutankhamun's tomb, he didn't die for about 17 years after <laughs> and he died back in England so you would think that the main guy who found it would die if this was real but maybe they were cursing him by making all of his friends around him die. I don't know, but they were just relocated, the recent ones, so let's see. But some Egyptians who believe this have actually blamed the recent blockage of the Suez Canal on, you know, opening a mummy's tomb. Now, if you're kind of logical and you don't really believe this, most scientists who have looked into it believe that the curse is actually mould, coming into contact with mould from a tomb that has been shut for 3,000 years. Um, it has dead bodies of humans in it, food which was sent into the sarcophagus with the dead pharaoh for them to eat in the afterlife, and also, you know, their animals as well. So there would be, and then they'd shut up. So can you imagine the stink, like when they open it? I can't even imagine. Now they've done lab studies on recent mummies and that was found to carry, you know, very dangerous mould, which can cause your lungs to bleed. Um, This is called lung assaulting bacteria known as Pseudomonas and Staphylococcus. Um, And they found that when they shut the door, they can actually, that continues to grow like on the tomb wall. So when you're walking into the tomb, you're probably just inhaling it. And I presume I have seen pictures and I can't see them wearing masks. In the 20s, I presume they just walked in and they didn't have like a gas mask or anything on. Other scientists believe that it wasn't actually the tombs that caused these deaths. It was actually visiting Egypt. So Egypt was incredibly unsanitary. I mean, parts of it still are. Um, And these people were there for like long periods of time. So they could have been eating, you know, bad food, being in poor kind of drinking poor water because they probably didn't have bottled water back at the time that was like filtered, all of these different things. Um, And that kind of proves itself right because modern day Egyptologists are fine and don't seem to be dying like before their time. Now let's go back to Egypt. So Egypt was a part of the British Empire until 1922 when it became independent. Then in 1952, there was a revolution that brought about major changes where Egypt became its own republic. And from 1959 to 1961, it actually joined with Syria, which I didn't know, and called itself the United Arab Republic, which then ceased to exist in 1961. 
Now, due to the fact that the Sahara Desert takes up most of the land mass of Egypt, um, and it's mostly desert, only the land near the Nile, which is the, you know, massive river that continues on right through Egypt and I think into other parts of Africa. Um, Most people have to live near the Nile because the land there is the most arable, meaning it's easily used um, to grow crops and things like that. So most people end up living in like a 40,000 square kilometre area, you know, or in the major cities as well, which is Alexandria, um, Luxor, is that a city? Um, Cairo, etc. So for tourists to Egypt, they'd be surprised to know that there's incredible beaches along the Red Sea, um, the Pyramids of Giza to see, um, the Valley of the Kings, going for a cruise down the Nile. If you're interested in watching that, there's Joanna Lumley who plays Patsy in Ab Fab. She has amazing travel documentaries that you can watch. I'm sure they're on YouTube. She did one where she traveled down the Nile and she's very different to Patsy in real life. You can do desert safaris, um, go shopping at the souks, which are the markets, visit the mosques of Cairo, visit Alexandria, etc. There's no real shortage of landmarks to see. Now, when I think of Egypt, I always think of Carl Pilkington on an episode of In Idiot Abroad when he went to Egypt and he really was not impressed. He goes to the pyramids and there's literally like scaffolding like next to the pyramids. Like it looks like it's a shitty movie set. And it's literally like there's a city right behind it. And then he goes, oh, look, and there's like a nappy filled with shit like flying through the air and there's like rubbish everywhere. They really, as he saw it, they really don't, bother to clean up this, you know, one of the seven wonders of the world um, or are looking after it. And then, you know, when he's in the city of Cairo, he's a man with a team of, you know, photographers and film filmmakers and stuff. He's constantly just harassed. He can't even get like a foot ahead without being harassed by someone, you know, who wants him to eat somewhere or buy something or do something. And he starts to get, you know, really like ticked off. There's one thing that's done me head in since I've been here. It's all this. You can't walk down here. Forget, like, just using it as a cut-through because it's not a shortcut. It can't be a shortcut because you get stopped every few seconds. You all right? So, I mean, I bet she left the house when she was 10. And tell you, seriously, it takes you forever to get anything done here. Now, Egypt is actually an economic power of North Africa, and unbelievably, which I didn't really know, it is projected to become one of the largest economies in the world this century. It's the 33rd strongest GDP in the world, which is really surprising because I didn't expect that. Now, mostly for the last 50 years, Egypt has had a lot of unrest. It's fought with Israel, it's occupied the Gaza Strip, and pretty much since the last, kind of for the last 10 years, political unrest is more common than not. In 2011, a lot of you will remember the 2011 revolution, which unfortunately has given way to more terrorism, economic uncertainty, and its current government under LCC is classified as an authoritarian government. So let's get into a bit of, a bit about crime in Europe. So 
Human rights in Egypt are abominable and it really saddens me when people go to these places as tourists and they don't see this side of it. I felt that way in Cambodia. They go there and spend their money in the centre of town but people are suffering all over the place and, you know, you're able to leave. Less and less people are visiting there and you can understand why, especially for women. Now, non-violent crime is very common in Europe, in particular, which plays very heavily into this case, government corruption, police corruption, money laundering, also drug trafficking as drugs come up this way, you know, to go to Europe um, and buying and selling on the black market and white collar crime is very common. Now, according to statistics, petty crime has been on the decline since the 80s, which is kind of one good thing in relation to tourists going there. I'm sure it still exists because it's such a, when you see that clip of an idiot abroad, it's so closely, densely populated. I just wouldn't want to be in that situation. But actually, as a lot of you will know, sexual violence against women is one of the most common crimes and it is a country with some of the highest rates of sexual violence against women. Now, I found this thing that said that dress code has done nothing to do basically to alter the statistics And a lot of women, you know, by choice decided to dress, you know, very modestly and it really has done nothing. And I really thought about that because about a week ago or so, um, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, a place that we haven't been to before, Imran Khan, who was a really famous cricketer, like Brits will know him and, you know, Pakistanis, Indians and Australians and New Zealanders. But he's now the Prime Minister of um, Pakistan and he has actually done a lot of good in the last few years being Prime Minister. He's basically trying to crack down on corruption and he's a very interesting man. Now, he has also recently brought in the death penalty um, for crimes such as rape, which people have seemed to overlook because about a week ago, he said something that a lot of people took out of context. He basically said, you know, about what women were wearing, but it was totally taken out of context and people went mental. And, you know, one person, you know, the voice of reason in some comments wrote this guy recently brought in the death penalty for rape because a woman, her car broke down and she was raped on the side of the road in Lahore, Pakistan. Um, People seem to kind of forget that. Um, It was totally taken out of context. He's almost 70 years old. Everyone's dad says some shit like that. Like we need to stop being offended at that and start looking at the stuff that's, you know, serious. So basically when I was thinking about how women decided to alter the statistics you know, it just proves, to alter their dress code, it just proves that that really doesn't do a whole lot. Um, And that's according to the Egyptian Centre for Human Rights, because kind of over the last couple of decades, more and more women's rights and human rights organisations have cropped up across Egypt. Now, the Egyptian Centre for Women's Rights carried out a survey in 2008, and these will really shock you, these statistics. This survey found that 83% of Egyptian women had experienced sexual harassment at some time within Egypt. Now, I'm going to give you the statistic for foreign women who had either visited Egypt or were living there as expats. 98% of foreign women within Egypt had experienced sexual harassment at some time. Now, of all of those women, only 12% had gone to the police um, for the issue because as we get into it, you'll see that police really aren't going to act on that. I would be scared of them locking me up. It's that kind of country. Now, many of these rapes have been mass rapes. It's so fucked to even talk about, but 
These men who hate women and see them as meat, which certain countries in the world do, and I'm not afraid to say it, they have been had mass raped women during religious festivals, cultural festivals and protests, in particular the 2011, you know, revolution one. Now, this has included women from Egypt as well as foreigners and female journalists, which you may know, which have visited to report on it. And in most cases, not only have the police done nothing, but they've actually just stood there and watched them do it and done nothing. Now, this is a quote um, related to these mass rapes um, and I guess the science behind it. Quote, in these assaults, assailants would encircle a woman while outer rings of men deter rescuers. The attackers regularly pretend to be there to help the woman, adding to the confusion. Women reported being groped, stripped, beaten, bitten, penetrated with fingers and raped. The attacks were described as the circle of hell, unquote, which is just such a medieval fucking thing. Now, despite this, sexual assault is rarely discussed in the context of government or the public. And actually most, most Egyptian women, and I have a statistic coming up, believe that the women deserved it. And that must involve some women who then themselves have been assaulted. Um, Their belief really is that it's an American idea, the sexual assault or rape, and that it doesn't exist in the confines of Egypt. Now, this is what I think of, as I said at the start of this episode, when I think of Egypt, sadly, I think of Lara Logan, who was a foreign correspondent working for CBS in February 2011, reporting on protests then. She was sexually assaulted, which was caught on camera by hundreds of men in Tahir Square, which is in Cairo, um, while she was reporting on the 2011 revolution. She was assaulted for 30 minutes by around 200 men in Tahir Square in the same kind of circle as I was talking about then. Um, She was then rescued by a group of Egyptian women and soldiers after it had been about 30 minutes. And I remember that so clearly and sadly that is what I think of when I think of Egypt because I was studying journalism. I'd just finished my journalism degree and I wanted to be a foreign correspondent and I thought, what's the fucking point? She also had like male cameramen in that and this is, in, this is a woman saying this. They should have sent a male journalist, um, not a female one, but I think that they were scared with people getting offended by it. Um, but in hindsight, they should have sent their own security either with her or they should have sent a male journalist with security because it wouldn't have happened that way. Now, studies into all of this consider, you know, this to be because the men are mostly misogynistic to women in Egypt. And the author of a book called Sex and the Citadel looked into this. Now, she found, her name is is Shireen El-Feki, she found that it mostly comes down to men wanting to dominate women. It also comes down to men perceiving that they are sexually deprived because there's strict rules around getting married and having sex before marriage and things like this. So these men believe that they're entitled to it because they're sexually deprived. The blue balls argument, as I would call it. Um, Unemployment, high rates of unemployment in, you know, people just standing around, um, social media and what she calls, quote, the breakdown of family surveillance, which means that the parents are working a lot. They're not there. They're not overseeing a lot of their teenagers, you know, or young adults that live with them. But I would not blame the parents. This is something wrong with the person unless their father like fucking took them to one of these mass rapes. Now, 
in one survey they actually found which is probably the saddest thing i came across that 60 percent of the highest educated women in egypt who technically should be the smartest blamed the victims of sexual harassment in egypt on either their provocative clothing or just how they were acting 75 percent of the least educated women blamed the victim so it kind of shows that you are less likely to blame the victim if you're educated more, but really the least educated are probably, you know, the poorest who are probably controlled by, you know, men in their family who tell them that they deserve it and therefore they grow up believing it. Now, male respondents to this survey who, you know, were questioned about why these women, sexual harassment is so common in Egypt, they said 96.3% of them said, quote, unquote, wearing tight clothes um, and that the women, quote, unquote, do not conform to religious ethics with regard to their appearance, unquote, which is 94.5%. Now, it doesn't say what they meant by that, but I can only assume that because it's a Muslim country, they're not wearing, you know, a hijab, a niqab, which is really not common at all, or covering their head you know or anything like that and maybe they're wearing makeup because a lot of you know Muslims do wear a lot of makeup my ex's sister like wore tons even though she wore you know a headscarf maybe that's what they mean now if you're a tourist don't think that you'll be let off because as I said 98 of 98 percent of women from overseas have experienced sexual harassment in Egypt and I'm sure a portion of those have been raped or sexually assaulted now the first I was just thinking of that girl it just came to me that Polish girl who went to Egypt and jumped out of the hospital window um, and the two men with her like what relation were they her name is Magdalena something now is that Egypt yeah now Egypt is so behind on this kind of stuff that they only did the first imprisonment for rape in 2008 now there is a group that I found that's called I saw harassment and it kind of documents harassment of women in Egypt now they had people kind of film things and send them in. Um, they had people send in footage of women being assaulted. One woman that they had footage of in Alexandria in 2011 being dragged across the ground and hoisted onto men's shoulders. Um, in December 2011, they had another video that they released that showed a woman partially covered um, by an abaya being beaten, stomped and dragged around by the military into here Square, which is in Cairo. Um, a man is similarly, similarly attacked in the same video and thousands of women took to the streets as a result of that video. They put them on their YouTube channel or whatever their equivalent of video social media is. One from June 2014 showed a naked woman into here Square, which is where a lot of people go to protest protest being sexually assaulted during inaugural inaugural celebrations for President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi so just imagine imagine Joe Biden or Trump's inauguration and a woman just being raped in the crowd and just no one fucking doing anything about it these people are like savages now ultimately one of their videos was forced to be taken down the woman requested that it was taken down because it showed her face which I presume that she was going to be probably bashed in result like for sending it in you know um in that video women were grabbing at this woman during this inauguration and that it took police 20 minutes to get her out of the crowd several seven men aged between 15 and 49 were arrested so this is probably ingrained in you from the time you're a young man now i just found before i get into this um this case of julio because it's quite a long episode I found 
another case that I was going to do, but there was just not enough information about it because we didn't even have the names of these two men. But in 2019, it was reported that two German men who had visited Egypt had vanished after in transit while they were stopped from getting on a transiting flight um, after encountering authorities at Cairo airport. And it made me think of another case where someone else, and I can't think of it, it was on some podcast or YouTube or something where people have vanished while they've been in transit. Clearly the authorities like nabbed them for something. But I was just thinking like you're not even like safe within the transit station of like an airport. Now I'm going to read this to you because as we get into um, the case of Julio, this ties in quite a lot. Amnesty. Egypt's National Security Agency, NSA, so it's got the same, you know, as the one in America, is abducting, torturing and forcibly disappearing people in an effort to intimidate opponents and wipe out peaceful dissent, said Amnesty International in a damning new report published today, which highlights an unprecedented spike in enforced disappearances since early 2015. Egypt, you officially do not exist, disappeared and tortured in the name of counterterrorism, reveals a trend which has seen hundreds of students, political activists and protesters, including children as young as 14, vanish without a trace at the hands of the state. On average, three to four people per day are seized, according to local NGOs, usually when heavily armed security forces led by the NSA officers storm their homes. Many are held for months at a time and are often kept blindfolded and handcuffed for the entire period. Enforced disappearance has become a key instrument of state policy in Egypt. Anyone who dares to speak out is at risk, with counterterrorism being used as an excuse to abduct, interrogate and torture people who challenge the authorities. The report goes on to go into the torture of those who were like imprisoned by the NSA. Now, if you can't deal with this, probably shut your, cover your ears for a couple of minutes, but one man who was forcibly disappeared, they tend to target people like is common, um, intellectual people, academics, students, protesters, young people who have the idea that what's going on here is not right. It's the same all over the world. They tend to target them by pointing to them as being you know, terrorists or something like that, which I see happening all across the world in regards to what's going on in the world at the moment. People who don't think that things add up, they're being, you know, called terrorists, things like that, being arrested at peaceful protests um, against it, things like that. So one man said that he was raped with a wooden spoon in order in order to extract a false confession from these NSA authorities, um, probably didn't even know what he was arrested for. Another man who was 14 at the time said he was beaten, giving ele- given electric shocks all over his body, suspended from his limbs in order to extract a false confession after he was forcibly disappeared for 34 days. He was blindfolded and handcuffed the whole time. Um, there was another man who was also blindfolded and handcuffed for the whole time. He was brutally beaten, given electric shocks, including on his genitals, and su- suspended naked by his wrists and ankles. Um, so these are as young as children, 14, um, and their parents don't know where they are. And there's thousands of these happening um, every year in the name of counterterrorism, which means people questioning things that are going on within the country. Now, basically the way Egypt operates is there is no freedom of speech, association, education, every single one of those can land you in the hole. Now, I'm just about to get into Giulio's case, but basically I want to say that we're dealing with Giulio, who was Italian, um, and we're dealing with Egypt. Now, I had no idea, but economically, the two countries, Italy and Egypt, are significant economic partners. And the biggest partnership in the EU is like Italy, 
than Egypt. Now, they have really strong military um, really strong military and economic partnership between Italy and Egypt. And I'll get into that a little bit more. So don't know if that has something to do with why Giulio became interested in what he was writing about. Um, but let's get into the murder of Giulio Regini. So Giulio, I think, had only been in Cairo for around six months um, from memory. I don't have it here, but I believe that he just got there before he started his PhD or doctoral research. He spent time in Cairo working for the United Nations Industrial Development Organization, which is short for it is UNIDO. Now, Giulio was researching for his doctorate, a very broad topic, which I think would bore me to tears, but I, I think it's probably very important um, in terms of uncovering corruption. He was researching the status of trade unions or so unions um, under the current Egyptian president, who is still president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Now, clearly this is going to get eyes on you um, because they would think, which they do with a lot of people who are doing PhDs who travel to the actual country they're looking into, that this person is a spy, um, they're giving information back to their own country or to someone else, things like that. And Julia is very similar to a woman who I think I mentioned on a recent podcast. I'm not going to do her story, but um, she was an Australian academic. She was a professor at Melbourne University, which is in my city. She was an expert in Islamic studies um, and she travelled to Iran couple of years ago for research and basically they arrested her when she was returning um, trying to fly out they said that she was a spy and she's only recently after a couple of years been let out and returned to Australia and she was recently interviewed if you'd like to watch it Kylie Moore Gillies I think it is um, just type in Australian academic Iran but basically as somebody put she was writing all this stuff, probably painting Iran and teaching people that it was like a great place. And she really felt the full force of this place when she was arrested, i.e. shithole. Now, according to Al Jazeera, Regini was working on this kind of his whole thesis, which would have been, you know, 100,000 words um, on the topic of labour organisations in Egypt and how you know, they're influenced by the government, I guess. Now, he had also written articles critical of the government, but according to Al Jazeera, these were under a pen name or, you know, a fake name. Now, soon after arriving in Cairo and settling in, he very quickly, although he didn't know at the time, he drew the attention of the security services in Egypt. Now, the way I was going to tell this, I was going to tell it backwards, body being found, then who it was. But I just decided to tell it in chronological order because otherwise it'll be too confusing. So basically, security services in Egypt, probably without Julio knowing, closely monitored these unions and they started to monitor Julio. Um, now, unions have a lot of push, I'm not really going to get into them too much, um, where they believed that the mass protests in 2011, which overthrew the longtime president of Egypt, Hosni Mubarak, the unions were a very strong motivator behind that. So they're really trying to clamp down on how much power, you know, the unions have. Now, one of the unions that Julio was researching was the Street Vendors Union, which is an actual union in Egypt because it's the income of a huge amount of people. Now, the head of that union who he had been speaking to in terms of research was a man named Mohammed Abdullah. 
Now, according to the Wall Street Journal, quote, one of Mr. Regini's main research suspects, Muhammad Abdullah, the head of the Street Vendors Union, tipped off intelligence services about the young Italian. Mr. Abdullah regularly informed on Mr. Regini to his contact at Egypt's feared national security agency, Maj Majdi Ibrahim Abdel Al-Sharif, whom Italian prosecutors have identified as the leader of the Egyptian operation against Mr. Regini, unquote. So he thought he was there doing a thesis on for Cambridge for his PhD. He was seen as like a national security threat by Egypt and he probably didn't even know it at the time. Now, the NSA suspected that Giulio might have been trying to fuel social unrest through the unions by talking to them and giving them ideas, which is something that the president and the NSA do not want. This is all information that has been uncovered through a later investigation. Um, and pretty much this Mr. Abdullah, the head of the street vendors union, really didn't help when he was informing on him. He kind of put like a target on his back. Now, he said, Mr. Abdullah, that Giulia Regini had offered to help his union apply for a grant from a British non-governmental organisation of £10,000, which is the equivalent of US dollars Now, if he had done that, and if that is true, that's going beyond what his thesis is. He's meant to be objective and present an argument, you know, showing research into a certain topic with the thesis. But I don't know if maybe he got there and he felt more sorry for them, how they were living. I don't know. I don't even know if that is true. It's never been confirmed. These are just things that he was telling the NSA. But then again, this Mr. Abdullah could have been looking for a few perks for himself by making up stuff. Um, but he was basically helping, and they do know that he was going to help with this grant from a British NGO, which was going to give the street vendors union, you know, the equivalent of 13,000 US dollars, which is quite a large amount in Egypt which is seen as him fueling a revolution, basically. Now, this Mr. Abdullah pretty much was the NSA's key person against Julio without Julio even knowing this young 28-year-old guy who's just doing a PhD, you know, in Cairo. On the 7th of January 2016, just a couple of weeks before he disappeared, um, Mr. Abdullah used a hidden camera to film Julio discussing the grant application, but the grant application ultimately never happened. Now, this video after Julio's body was found was aired on Egyptian state television, which is pretty much whatever the government wants you to think. Um, and they pretty much put it on the TV to prove that Julio was a spy or a subversive or something like that. They really weren't going to show the fact that maybe he was trying to help underprivileged people, but whatever. So they believe that this final act with the grant application was, is what led to Julio's abduction. And I'm saying this from the outset, most people believe that the NSA is responsible his, for his abduction. But then again, with the Bob Levinson case, very similar, they maintained that it wasn't me. So they believed he was financing a revolution. Now, security services ultimately also recruited two other people later on to inform on him, probably because they were scared for his lives. One of them was his housemate in Egypt. So what else are they going to do? Um, and a Egyptian friend from Cambridge University. So let's go back to January 2016. He'd only been there for a few months and clearly this contact that he thought he had, Mr. Abdullah, was going behind his back. And I hope he feels bad for the rest of his life because what I'm about to tell you is terrible. January 25th, 2016, Giulia Regini, Italian academic in Cairo, vanished. 
Now, he vanished on the anniversary of the Arab Spring, which you may know. Italy had very close ties to Libya back in the day from what I kind of studied. Um, and so did Egypt. And Egypt had close ties, you know, to funding, um, funding, what's his name? Gaddafi. So the streets of Cairo were full of security people because they thought that there might be a protest or something like that. Sounds familiar. Um, and very few people were going out in the city because there was too many, you know, security and you could be in danger. So Giulio at the last minute that night decided to meet um, a fellow Italian in near Tahir Square, which we've talked about before. It's the big square where a lot of protests happen um, and meet up with an Egyptian professor whose birthday it was that night, sadly for that dude. Now at 7.41pm, Giulio sent a Facebook message to his girlfriend in Ukraine, quote, going to see the professor with Gennaro. Hope yoga is going well. Let me know when you get home, unquote. And that was the last time that anybody heard from Julio. Just before 8pm, he was abducted at his local metro stop, getting on the train and taken to a nearby police station. He was blindfolded and driven across the Nile to the offices of the NSA, the National Security Agency, which is inside the grounds of Egypt's Interior Ministry. Now, according to the Wall Street Journal, who probably did some of the best US coverage of this, they've got huge articles that they've written. The NSA is, is within office number 13 of a four-story villa, and this would have been, according to their investigations, where Giulio was taken. This room is typically reserved for the interrogation of foreign nationals, so that's why he was taken there. And then Giulio was tortured for days. According to a witness um, who was a 15-year veteran of the NSA, but no longer. And time and time again, more and more witnesses have come out and said that they witnessed this. So I think there's really no denying it. Now, the former NSA officer later told Italian investigators who were, you know, gunning for an answer for this, quote, in the room, there were metal chains used to tie people up. The upper half of his body was naked and there were signs of torture. He was speaking in his language. He was delirious, unquote. Now, that was what he told Italian investigators in their own, you know, research into this case, which is still ongoing. He said, quote, he was very, very thin. He was handcuffed to the floor, unquote. Now, I don't know what day, you know, that was, but he was probably dehydrated. I very much doubt for the week he was tortured, he was fed, anything like that. Um, So he was probably delirious from being tortured and being dehydrated as well. Um, It would be crazy. It would be, I just can't even put into words. January 30th, 2016, Giulio's parents flew to Cairo from Italy to, you know, lead the charge in helping finding him. Nine days after he vanished on the streets of Cairo, Giulio, his body was found on February 3rd, 2016 in a ditch, which was next to a road outside Cairo. His body had just been kind of, you know, thrown into a ditch. His mother said, quote, I only recognised him by the tip of his nose. As for everything else, it was not Giulio, unquote. So... Giulio was found naked and his body was mutilated. And this kind of torture um, kind of reminds me a little bit of that 
famous Japanese case. I don't know what the girl's name is. I can't think of it. Who was tortured for 44 days um, and all the things that they did to her. I mean, Julio was tortured for a week, um, but it's bad. He had contusions and abrasions all over his body from being repeatedly beaten, kicked, punched, hit with sticks. Um, he had more than more than two dozen bone fractures, seven broken ribs, all of his fingers and toes were broken, his legs were broken, his arms and his shoulder blades. He had multiple stab wounds on the body, on his body, including on the soles of his feet, which if you think back to the old kite case, the hitting of the feet, um, flacker, whatever it's called, they believe that the stab wounds on his feet were from an ice pick um, or something similar. He had numerous cuts across his body from a sharp instrument, which they believe was a razor. He had had cigarettes put out on him across his body. He had a big burn mark between his shoulder blades, which they believe was probably like a brand with a hard and hot object, they call it. He ultimately um, had a broken neck which caused his death and he also had a brain hemorrhage before that. Now it doesn't say here but I, I've never, you can't get access to his autopsy or anything but I don't think I'd want to read it but um, he'd also according to another source had his initials burnt into his skin with like a brand. He wasn't even like recognisable as a human being when he was found. Um, he was it also says that they pulled out his fingernails, which is probably like the thing that really scares me the most. That's something that the Japanese did, you know, to prisoners of war, stuck bamboo up their fingernails during the Second World War or the Pacific War. Um, but all of these things that happened to him are very much in line with what happens to these people who are enforced disappearances, as we'll get into Um and I, I just can't believe that he was alive for that long. And you'd hope that you'd just die. You'd be screaming for them just to kill you, like that girl in Japan. Um, people who can do these kinds of things, they're fucking animals. They're not even human beings. But I wouldn't even call them animals because animals don't kill people for the fun of it or to interrogate people. They kill people. They kill animals for survival. So very quickly... Suspicion was cast on the Egyptian state security, the NSA, um, the secret detention where no one knew where he was for, you know, until his body was found nine days later. Everything kind of tied in with the torture that people suffer in prison. They believe that most people um, in prison are tortured like this. So, as I said, forced disappearances under state security are common, but most are returned alive, which makes many people question why Julio was killed and maybe, you know, maybe think that he wasn't intended to be killed um, in this instance. But then again, they couldn't just return him to Italy because then he'd be able to, you know, speak on a world stage about how terrible they are. So Giulio's body ultimately underwent autopsies in both Egypt and his home country of Italy. Surprise, surprise, the Egyptian results have never been made public. Duh. But the Italian ones were, and they indicated that for the week that he was alive, he was tortured in that room for between 10 and 14 hours a day. So they were probably just rotating people who were torturing him, trying to get information out of him, thinking he was a spy, but he's just a doctoral student. Um, there were early reports that he had the electric shocks um, administered to his genitals, but the autopsy from Italy denied this, but who knows, because his body was in such a bad way and most of the people in his, you know, 
in his place have had that happen to them. His death sparked major outrage in Italy and strained diplomatic relations between the two countries. There was a lot of protests in Italy about it. Um, And Italy's government, rightly so, very quickly accused the Egyptian authorities of not cooperating and possibly being behind it. And issues kicked off from the very beginning. Now, the Egyptian prosecution, which is still ongoing until like December, just a few months ago, they put up all of these reasons why they weren't able to look into it and why he must have, you know, something else must have happened and a gang must have got him. They said that Julio's parents had basically collected his belongings from his residence in Cairo upon his death. They'd taken his laptop um, and they hadn't returned it. And they were basically saying, the Egyptians, that they can't they need to be able to look into his laptop to see if there's any evidence you know of what he was doing but i think that they just want the laptop for evidence of the research he was doing um they added that the italian side of the story had request had rejected requests to hand over the laptop so they weren't giving it back probably because they think Egypt a dodgy as might plant evidence against Julio. Um, the prosecution also said that it sought information from Cambridge University about what studies he was doing. Um, and they were also looking for the they were looking for testimony from a person in Kenya who is unnamed, who had basically been a witness to people talking from Egypt, people from Egypt talking about the Italian guy's murder, like as they put it. Um, he said that he'd, he was eavesdropping and he'd heard a conversation between an Egyptian police officer and another person. He'd seen their business cards to prove who they were and he said that he heard the officer who claimed to be personally involved in the kidnapping and the death of Julio. This guy's name is Major Majdi Ibrahim Abdel Al-Sharif, who's 35 years old and whose name comes up again and again. According to this eyewitness, these two were speaking in a cafe in Kenya um, and they were talking about how he was abducted and killed because they believed that he was a British spy. Um, And this officer who was talking said that when they'd abducted him and got him into the police van, again, I just want to say when eyewitnesses to him being abducted off the street near his metro station saw a police van with police plates. Um, So it's not that hard to, you know, prove who it was. He said he was forced to like hit and slap Julio, you know, in the car before they got him to the NSA headquarters. Now, Italian investigators of the last five years have rejected pretty much all the theories that have been put forward by the NSA and Egyptian authorities. They tried to put forward every possible thing that he was a spy and that someone else had killed him. A gang had abducted him and tortured him for like, what, no reason over seven days and then killed him. All kinds of things. Um, They even pointed at his behaviour and started turning it back on Giulio, you know, about things that he was doing and was he really, you know, a PhD student from Cambridge. Now, investigations revealed that, you know, this is what I was talking about earlier, that he was speaking to these street vendors who ultimately, you know, were informing on him. They were speaking, he was getting information from them for his research about Egypt's political system, how their union worked, because they were a major union, and kind of telling them that he could help them change the situation, which is how the grant came into it. The, the investigation stopped basically 
into because Egypt was doing an investigation into if he'd broken any laws by speaking to these street vendors but it turned out that his actions were not considered crimes against public security they were looking into it at the time of his death you know pointing the finger at him again trying to cover their own asses again the prosecution who were pretty much representing the government of Egypt in the NSA said that they didn't know who had done it, but they believed that whoever had done it had chosen the day that Julio was arrested Janu- or abducted, January 25th, 2016, which was the anniversary of the 2011 Arab Spring in Egypt for the crime. They were trying to frame police for the act because if you remember, there were police like everywhere on that day, security forces kind of patrolling everywhere. Now, the prosecution in Egypt further accused people, other people hostile to Egypt and Italy of the crime um, in a bid to drive a wedge between the two. They were saying that whoever had done it was trying to create a war between Egypt and Italy. Ultimately, according to the aforementioned NSA insider, Giulio died from a blow to the back of the neck on February February 1st, which was pretty much exactly a week after he'd been abducted. Now, Flash forward a month and in March 2016, Egypt's Interior Ministry announced that their security forces, the NSA, had killed five men from a criminal gang in a shootout and they believed that this criminal gang were responsible for Giulio's death. The reason for that was they found Giulio's passport and mobile phone in the gang's possession. Now, most people believe that this is a cover-up, and rightly so. There's a lot of evidence to it that they just picked a number of people, ultimately killed them, and then pointed the finger at them as the ones that they did it. Now, witnesses had seen these gang members being executed while they were like walking, not while they were in the van. So one was shot as he ran once. Sorry, this is a quote, quote, one was shot as he ran, his corpse later positioned inside the van, unquote. Now, they also had like no link to Giulio. Quote, Italian investigators used phone records to show that the supposed gang leader, Tarek Abdel Fattah, was 60 miles north of Cairo the day he supposed kidnapped Regini, unquote. Um, so ultimately, a new Cairo prosecutor's office was brought in and they denied later on that this criminal gang was involved in the murder, but they were very quickly trying to pin it, you know, on some randoms. Now, in the following months, Egyptian authorities again tried to basically muddy Giulio's name by offering up these bullshit reasons why someone could have killed him. They said that maybe he was killed in a car accident, which is considering how I told you about the state of his body, like how dumb do you want to be? I think I'm going to be blocked from going to Egypt after this, but I don't think I will. Um, They said that he may have died attending a sex party, like where people had like tortured him. It's, it's so fucking stupid. Now, a witness said, who was ex-NSA, that the NSA leader, who we've mentioned before, was tapping Julio's phone pretty much for weeks leading up to what happened. And he heard him and his friend on the phone, the Italian guy, planning their evening that they were going to meet up and go and, you know, meet their professor for his birthday. So that was when they decided to take the opportunity and intercept him on his way to meet his friend. They also said that they believed that Giulio was with the CIA at the time, but I think very quickly after his death, it's never been said, but I think they probably realised their mistake very quickly. Now, 
journalist Declan Walsh, who works for the New York Times, um, has had written quite a lot about this at the time. He's probably one of the few in the States that had. He found evidence um, that the Obama administration had known and had documents proving, quote, explosive proof that Egyptian security officials had abducted, tortured and killed Regini and, quote, Egyptian, Egypt's leadership was... what. <laughs> Sorry, I can't read. Egypt's leadership was fully aware of the death circumstances, unquote. So again, Obama, dodgy. I hope you know that now. So he also writes that Italians were up against Egyptians who were seemingly like protecting themselves, that they were hindered at every turn, according to Declan Walsh. He said, quote, that Italian investigators working in Egypt, quote, were hindered at every turn. Witnesses appeared to have been coached. Surveillance footage from the subway station near Regini's apartment had been deleted. Requests for metadata from millions of phone calls were refused on the grounds that it would compromise the constitutional rights of Egypt's citizens, unquote, which is really a laugh if you know how Egypt's citizens really don't have any constitutional rights. So this case has been ongoing for ages. Basically, the core of it is that the Italian prosecutors want the people responsible turned over so that they can be tried in absentia and then extradited to do their time in Italy. Egypt has decided, no, that's not happening and we're not looking into it, which really says a lot um, because most countries, I mean, this is a common thread throughout the podcast that they're not interested in damaging their own reputation, but in I believe that they've already damaged their own reputation and that no one wants to go there anymore, like unless you're nuts. So there's been in the last few months updates to this case. There was a bit of a lull for a couple of years and now it's been five years and they're finally got some movement, although it's not very good. A headline from 2nd of December 2020, quote, Cairo says it has closed an investigation into the 2016 murder of an Italian student, but Rome is set to prosecute five Egyptian security officials in absentia, unquote. So basically, Cairo, Egypt have said we're not looking into this anymore. Um, I mean, they weren't really ever and that we're done, but you can try people in absentia and then what you'd want to happen is that Egypt would then extradite that person or those five people that they believe didn't to Italy to do their time. You know, I guess, I don't, yeah, I was going to compare it to the Amanda Knox case, but no. Um, but the thing is that Egypt, considering how they feel about this, would probably block any extradition. So basically, you can probably see why Julio's loved ones are never going to get answers. The parents of Julio and activists um, of some political parties in Italy have demanded, you know, the relationship between Italy and Egypt to end. There was a sale of Italian weapons that was worth millions um, to Egypt and they were kind of trying to foil that. Now, on December 10th, 2020, um, Italian public prosecutor Michel Prestipino told a parliamentary commission in Rome that there were, quote, elements of significant proof implicating Egyptian policemen. Again, the NSA. Quote, we are going to ask to begin a criminal investigation concerning certain members of the Egyptian security services. We owe it to the memory of Giulio Regini, unquote. So that brings us to this year, and it is still in the news. Now, January 20th, 2021, 
a public prosecutor in Italy demanded legal action against four people from the NSA in Egypt for the kidnapping, torture and murder of Giulio Regini. Now, the four officers through their five-year-long investigation that they believe were responsible are Major General Tariq Saber, Colonel Assar Kamel Muhammad Ibrahim, Colonel Hussam Helmi and Major Ibrahim Abdel Al-Sharif. And that's three years of research that they believe through all the eyewitness accounts, everything that these other men responsible. And remember that half of the eyewitness accounts are people who are ex-NSA who are basically informing on their own. Now, as I said, Italy may try them in absentia, but even if extradited, even if an extradition order was issued, Egypt would unlikely grant it. So basically from 2016, the the president, Al-Sisi, who we've talked about, he had promised Giulio's family that he would get to the truth of what happened to their son, which is kind of a joke considering most people believe that everything that happens under him, he knows about Putin-esque. Um, but three years later, his parents published a reply, quote, we cannot be satisfied by your condolences anymore, nor by your failed promises, unquote. So basically to wrap up, I was reading a lot about kind of torture of people in Egyptian prisons for information, to give up information that they wouldn't even know about. So what are you going to do? Like just give out just start making stuff up, you know, clearly Julio did not do that. Um, and I was reading a article speaking with this guy called Mohammed Lotfi, who is the director of the Egyptian Commission for Rights and Freedoms. So he'll probably be assassinated at some point. Um, he represents the Julio Regini's family in Egypt, which is, it's an NGO group. And I don't think they can get a lot of headway. He said, quote, they didn't invent a new machine for Julio. They used the tools and practices that they had used on so many Egyptians, unquote. So, yeah, it's just fucking terrible. A torture story fucks me up more than, like, anything. I would rather be shot in the head from behind and not even know it than to be fucking tortured for seven days. Like, no water, no fucking food, no rest, probably let you sleep for like an hour and then wake you up again just to fuck with you sleep deprivation I mean you'd just wish you were dead um and probably thinking the whole time what what did I do I didn't do anything you know and I was reading a lot in this about how a lot of people at Cambridge kind of didn't want to help with the investigation on Italy's side which really didn't surprise me you know because half of their students are probably international students you know not from Egypt, but from countries that are allied with Egypt. So, you know, that really doesn't surprise me all that much, but it's a letdown because he had studied with them for so long and ultimately that's what happened. So I hope that you've quote unquote enjoyed this episode. Um, I will be back in about a week with a new one, most likely Nara's. I'm just going to read who I've got coming up. Um, so I've got Nara, Tegan, Lorna, Jamie Kay, Stephen, Jessica and Laura. So that will be over the next kind of few months and I'll pepper in my requests kind of throughout them. Uh, Soon I'm going to do just an update on like a little episode, which I was going to do today, but I decided to do this one um, on just recent cases that really like don't have enough to do a full episode, but things that I've seen in the news of like weird disappearances and things like that to in particular women who have like kind of been covering 
um, following their story. So visit their website at unknownpassagepodcast.com, become a patron, links off the website, or just download the patron app um, and search for Unknown Passage Podcast. Uh, leave a review if you like the show. I got a really nice one today. Um, it was really nice whoever sent that. I can't think of what your name is. Um, yeah, and if you've got a request, case suggestion, anything like that, send it to unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. I've also set up a PayPal for unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com if you don't want to support through Patreon but you want to send like a one-off donation through that one. So, yeah, um, I hope that you have a good rest of your week. If I don't reply to your emails, like, straight away, it's because I often, like, don't check the podcast ones on days where I'm doing work for my clients because it just confuses me too much or I don't go on Patreon for a couple of days or something. So, you know, know that I will. And we'll be back with a new episode next week in a whole other part of the world. Thanks.